The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to A Guided Life Podcast, where we talk about all things spirit and life. I'm your host, Laura West. Follow me on Facebook at GuidedWest11, on Instagram at GuidedWest, and on Twitter at LauraWest111. I also have a website at www.laurawest.net, where you can download a free guide on how to meet your own spirit guides. My book, Guided, is available on Amazon, and it's about soul teams, intuition, mediumship, and spiritual tools such as oracle and tarot cards, crystals, pendulums, and so much more. So my guest today is Jill McLennan. Jill is a death coach and certified death doula. Her path to becoming a death doula started when she moved home to New Jersey from California to care for her 90-year-old grandmother at the end of her life. Now she offers support, preparation, and soul-level healing to her clients through her work. So hello, Jill. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this. Me too. I am actually excited to talk about death. <laughs> I know that sounds so morbid, but you know, it's it's a really important conversation to have and I know when you and I connected, we talked about how it mm-hmm. is something that people just don't want to talk about. So I am looking forward to this candid conversation with you about it along with maybe some experiences that you've had as well when it comes to death and how it's not the end. It's not the end, it's just a transition. So very excited to talk about that with you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited. I mean, it's it's really not morbid to talk about death. I think that's just because we're afraid to talk about it. We don't usually talk about it. So often, if you're somebody that's interested in it, when you bring it up, other people get really freaked out. And it's just like, but really, it doesn't have to be that way. I love to talk about it. I mean, it's probably my favorite thing to talk about right now. Yeah, you could spend hours on it. I could. So perhaps if we can maybe get into it, what led you onto the path of becoming a death coach and a death doula and also explaining perhaps what those roles are? Sure. So I was really led to become a death doula when I took care of my grandmother at the end of her life. As you mentioned, I moved home to move in with her. And about a month later, she got diagnosed with cancer. We weren't obviously not expecting it. But again, at 90 years old, you know, it's kind of not unexpected either. And so we went through about a four year journey. 
watching it slowly progress. You know, she did go through some treatments. I watched her personality change. I mean, the whole thing was really an interesting experience. But then especially when we got to the last couple of weeks when the hospital sent her home and they said to me, you know, we're going to send your grandmother home on hospice, who is her main caregiver. And again, we were living with her. I had a six month old baby. It was me and my husband and our son. My husband and I had a bakery. So we were like running the bakery and we had the baby and I'd already been caring for grandma anyway. At that point, as the disease progressed, I took on more and more of the jobs of taking care of her. So I thought, okay, no big deal. Grandma's going to go home. I'm probably going to sleep a lot until she finally dies. And that was not the experience that I had. I think the night that they sent her home, the nun that she was the closest with, she was very Catholic, had gone to visit her in the hospital. And later on, when Sister Tarsicia came to the house and was talking with me, she said, you know, that last time I spoke with your grandmother, she said to me that she was ready to go, that it was time and she was ready to go. And I think when she said that, and when she made up her mind, part of her already left, even though her body was still here. Because that night, I got up in the middle of the night to help her out because I don't know, I heard her making some noise. And I had my baby because of course, he's a baby. So I'm like, you know, nursing him and carrying him around. And I go into her room and I'm trying to help her out. And she says, Oh, my granddaughter has a baby the same age as yours. And I said, Oh, well, I am your granddaughter. And she said, No, you're not. You're the nurse. And she's like, and who's the other woman in the room? And I'm like, looking around and I'm like, what is she talking about? Yeah. And I'm like, I, I just got chills. Yeah. I mean, at the time, especially, I was like, I was never afraid of the other side and spirits and all that. I just was a little startled by the whole situation. And so that night was a very long night. And the next day when hospice came in, the first thing I said to the woman was, what is happening? Like, please explain to me because she didn't know who I was. And that began the beginning of the three weeks of her active dying phase. And hospice was amazing. I mean, they really, every time they would come in and they would do anything with my grandmother, I was like right there. I'm like, what are you doing? What's going on? And I'd be like, you know what she said to me last night? Like, this is what happened. I mean, I was like, <laughs> I was so into this experience. And so when she did die afterwards, I said to my husband, I really, and I even said it to one of the hospice nurses. I was like, I really think I want to do this. Like, I think I want to go to school to be a nurse, but I'm not sure that I could do what you're doing. Cause at the time I was watching her do things that I was like, Oh, I don't know about this. And she's like, Oh honey, you could do this. And I'm like, I'm not sure. Spoken like a true nurse. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Like having a conversation while doing things that I don't want to do. And I was like, Oh wow. All right. But it was amazing. You know, the, the experience literally did change my life. And I ended up had the baby, I had our bakery, you know, once my grandmother died, though, we realized that my husband or I had to go get a like, quote, unquote, real job because we needed health insurance, we didn't have any health insurance. If anybody knows anything about food service, it, it's a very difficult business. And my grandmother, the agreement was we got to live with her and didn't pay any bills because it kept her in her house. My grandfather built her that house when they got married 
in like, I don't know, 1937 or something, you know, so she lived in that house forever. Amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. And it was a gift to be able to give that to her to keep her in that house until she died. But reality was life had to keep going. And so, you know, my husband went and got a job. We're actually in South Jersey. He got a job in Philly. He was commuting like an hour to get to work. Then we found out we were pregnant with our second. And so then we were like, you know what, we're closing this bakery, moving closer to Philly makes no sense for him to commute. And so we did all that. And then we had the second one and I got a job. And the job that I ended up getting was at, um, and I still actually work there part-time, is at a nonprofit that works with a lot of people that are, you know, coming out of the prison system, that were homeless, were addicted to drugs. There's a lot of death, dying, traumatic death. I mean, I've found more people that have OD'd and died on our property than you'd really want to think about. It's really unfortunate. So I was like kind of doing this work anyway. Like I was finding myself really holding space for people. And then like even, because I know you're on the more spiritual kind of woo side, as some people would say, I even had this one experience where one of my coworkers that had been one of my students, I one day was like, so I think your brother is in my head his brother had died of a heroin overdose while he was in prison. And so this man, I swear, invaded my brain and was like screaming at me until I finally went and talked to his brother and told him a bunch of things that literally made no sense to me. I said, I've tried to explain to people what it felt like talking to him. I said, it's like speaking a different language than somebody. And I could only get like bits and pieces and like weird jumbles of words. And so I'm like, you're probably going to think I'm insane. But if I don't tell you this, I'm literally not going to get any sleep because he kept me up all night last night. And he said to me, yesterday was my brother's birthday. My whole family just went to the cemetery to see him. And that night, the night of his birthday, this man kept me up screaming in my head that I had to tell his brother this random jumble of stuff, right? So like, I was just getting bombarded Wow! at my job with all these different things that was like, kind of pushing me essentially in a direction. And in 2019, I was listening to a podcast and somebody said they were a death doula. And I was like, oh my God, that's it. That's it. Like it was like something just clicked inside of me where I was like, oh, that's what you've been waiting for. And I just threw the idea around a little bit. I mean, I'm 43 now. This, I was probably 39, 40 at the time. And I'm thinking, am I crazy? Like, what am I thinking? I'm going to completely switch careers and do something totally different. But it just felt right. And so I started researching, how do you become a death doula? And I started looking up death doulas on Instagram and I reached out to a woman that's in California and she's a death doula. And I was like, I'm all the way on the other side of the country, but her name's Jill as well. And I loved her like profile and all her pictures. Like I just really resonated with her. And so I was like, will you just talk to me and like, give me maybe some advice. And she was like, yeah, sure. Whatever. Like I mentor people, but in LA, And so I was like, that's fine. Like, I just want somebody I could ask questions to because I had found an online program, but it was just the program. There wasn't like one-on-one support. And so I started my training and I was online and I was like talking to this woman, Jill, once in a while. And then COVID happened and she was like, 
I can't really mentor people in person. Like, do you want to try it? So we did a mentorship and now it's amazing. Now she has this like whole group program. Like she's really expanding it. She's actually going to be building a hotel in California where you could essentially go to to die. That's going to be staffed by all death doulas. Like it's amazing. And I'm going to go out to California and work there for a couple months because I'm just so excited about this idea of having a place to go that isn't a hospital and it's not a nursing home. And it's just right. It's beautiful. It's amazing. So that's how I kind of got here. And I thought it was going to take me years. Like I still had my job full time. I was teaching also at a college. I have two kids. I'm polyamorous. So I had two partners. I was like, I have up above my head already in stuff. So it's probably going to take me five, six years to get this done. And then with COVID, all of a sudden, I had my website and everything done by July of 2020. And I was like, oh, wow. So now (laughs) what do I do? And I went back to work full time because I love my job. I love my coworkers. I love my students that I teach. I mean, it's, it's not that I was leaving that behind because I didn't love it. But working in kitchens is really hard work. I don't want to do this. I've been doing it since I was 16. I don't want to do it until I'm 65. (laughs) I was like, I can't do this forever. And again, like just the death doula thing, as soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, I think this is what I'm meant to do. It just feels like the calling of my soul that this is what I was meant to do. And so in January, I left my job full time. And this way I could focus on my death doula business. But I'm still there part time because I love it. And I can't get away from it completely. But I love this work. I just am really passionate about having these conversations. Because that's the thing too. Like I trained to be a death doula. And the whole idea of being a death coach or an end of life coach kind of happened by mistake. Because when I went through my training, I didn't think that I had fears and anxieties around death. Like again, I've really always been fascinated with it. I was never afraid of it. I was always into ghosts and all that stuff. And so I was never afraid of dying. I wasn't afraid of death. But there were still little pockets in me that I didn't know were there especially when it comes to my children. The fear that I had around something happening to my children, I couldn't even think about it. And the reality is children die at all different ages, whether they're young children or whether they're your adult children. And not thinking about it isn't going to prevent it from happening. Thinking about it isn't going to make it happen But what it does for me is it gave me such an appreciation for all the time that I have with my kids, even when they're being jerks, even when I'm exhausted and they're screaming and they're carrying on. The way that my life has changed by doing my death doula training was something I never expected. And so the more that I talk to people about the work that I do and about the transformation that I went through, people kept saying to me, you sound like a life coach. And I was like, I guess I kind of am. I'm an end of life coach though, because no matter what stage of life you're at, whether you are 20, 30, 40, or whether you are actually at the end of life, so many people are afraid of dying. They just really 
have never faced any of their fears. They have all this unhealed grief that they've been holding on to. And so really, even if it is somebody that is actually at the end of life, a lot of what I do as a death doula is just help them be less afraid, help them feel more open to the idea that this might not be the end. I have my personal beliefs. I have my own spiritual beliefs and my own beliefs about what happens at the end of life and afterwards. And I'm never going to say to somebody, well, I believe that our souls move on and maybe come back again, or maybe they go somewhere else. But what I can say to them is, well, what did you grow up believing? Well, do you still believe that now? Why do you believe it? Have you ever thought that there may be something else? And really, a lot of people, when they're at the end of life, and they start to talk about getting these visitations that doctors will sometimes call hallucinations, but I don't believe that they're hallucinations. It could be possibly that there is something in the brain that is happening, but it's not a traditional hallucination. And there is some doctors that will even say that, like it's not hallucinations that people have when they're, you know, hallucinating on drugs or mentally ill. It is something different. I don't know what it is, but it brings people a lot of comfort towards the end of life when they start to see their friends and their family members visiting them and saying to them in a lot of cases, it's okay. It's okay to move on. It's okay to let go of this life because that's what a lot of it is, is this letting go of whatever we are attached to in this life, including our physical bodies. And so that's kind of what I do. And again, you can tell, I'm sure that I get super excited about this because I think it's really important work and I'm here for the hard stuff and it's not as hard and it's not as scary as people think it is, if we can just open ourselves up to it and have the conversations. But people usually, not usually, but often have just never had the conversation. So they're scared of having it. It's like my daughter getting shots at the doctor. She screams and cries and carries on for an hour. And then she gets the shot and she's like, oh, that wasn't so bad. And I'm like, yeah. But the hour leading up to it was insanity and you were miserable. So why are you doing that to yourself every time? Right. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing people do about death. They don't want to talk about it. But then once they start to, they're like, oh, this is actually nice. Like you're making this not scary. I'm like, yeah, because it doesn't have to be. So I don't know. I love it though. It makes me happy to be part of people's lives in such a really important intimate time in our human lifespan. Because again, even if we do come back, I'm not going to come back as Jill, right? I'm not going to come back as this physical body. So having people around me at the end of my life that love me and care for me just feels like that would be really nice. And hopefully it won't be anytime soon, but I mean, we have no control over that. So Right. Yeah. So, I mean, what an amazing journey and amazing story that you've shared so far. I'm curious, what does a death doula do for somebody at end of life? Are they with them till the end? Are they sort of on call? And when, at what point do they come into the process? Yeah. So it's different for every death doula. There are things that pretty much are standard in what death rules do. It's all non-medical care. We're typically there to provide 
emotional, spiritual support for people. Spiritual in the sense of we're not chaplains, we're not religious, but again, we're there for the transformation that tends to happen to people towards the end of life. Some doulas will offer respite care for caregivers. Some doulas will be on call. That's one of the services that I offer so that I can actually go and sit with you know the person's family and sit with them at the time of transition if they want. A lot of what death doulas do is educating the families as to what to expect, because most of us have not actually seen what the reality of end of life looks like. We've seen it in movies, we've seen it on TV, and none of that's real. It's not how it actually happens to most people. And so we're just not prepared for it. And that's a lot of what a death doula can do is come in. One of the clients that I have now, you know, a lot of it is that she's not in the act of dying phase, but she's just nearing it enough. And that a lot of fears and anxieties are coming up and there's a lot of unhealed grief. So again, it's almost like a life coach where I just go in and I sit and I talk with her and I ask her questions and I just give her the space to be able to work through things on her own so that she is able to just face these next couple of weeks or months. And the biggest thing is that her children said to me, we just don't want her to be so afraid. Like she's just so full of fear right now. And I'm like, yes, that's what I'm here for. She has hospice to come in and do all the other stuff. And yes, hospice has social workers and hospice has chaplains, but this is really a different thing. Like they're all pieces of the same puzzle that we all work really well together, just making sure that everything goes smoothly. And not again, not all death rulers will do this, but this is something I do. I really work a lot with the family as well. So I work with their fears and anxieties to make sure that also everybody's understanding what's happening because, you know, a lot of times doctors, nurses, they have their own language and they, I think sometimes assume that people understand. And because people are also overwhelmed, they're just nodding their head. They're like, yep. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then as soon as the, you know, the staff leaves, everybody's like, I have no idea what they just said. Like, I don't know what's going on. Everybody has a different interpretation of what they just said. And that's where, you know, a death doula can come in and really be that guide to help the entire family, as well as the person that is going through the actual dying phase. We can help with paperwork. A lot of death doulas will help you get together a advanced health directive, which is kind of like, I sometimes will say it's like a fluffy will where it's similar to a living will, but it's also, you know, where, what kind of music do you want? Do you want, you know, flowers and candles? Like what kind of stuff do you want? How can I set this room up for you? Again, if hospice comes in and brings all this medical equipment, they like bring it all in, they drop it there. And all of a sudden your room's transformed into something that is useful for you medically, but it doesn't feel good. So how can I make this feel better for you? Maybe it's even just moving things a little bit where family doesn't want to touch anything and I don't blame them. Like, you know, but there's a lot of different ways that death duels can work with people just to make this transition at the end of life the best that it can be. You know, there's like this 
holy grail of like the, you know, the good death, like everybody wants the good death. And everybody that wants to, most people, if you ask them, where do you want to die? They're going to say they want to die at home. I think I've had one person say to me, they actually would rather be in the hospital because they just feel like they trust hospitals. Like, okay, that's cool. If that's what you want, like, I will make sure that that's what happens. Most people say they want to die at home, but most people don't die at home. And so death doulas can come in and do our best to make sure that people have the experience that they want to have. Again, somebody even said to me, you almost sound like a party planner. And I was <laughs> like, I guess like a death party planner, but sure. Because some people do also want their loved ones around. They want music, you know, they don't want it to necessarily yeah. be this really somber thing. But they also don't want to hear their children fighting. And so that's another thing that death doulas can do is why don't we take this conversation out somewhere else? Because again, hospice is not there for that. Hospice is not there to play like referee between the two children that are fighting over mom's jewelry before mom's even dead. She can hear you when you're doing this. So like, let's move this somewhere else. And that's what death doulas can do. We can really just make this experience. And then again, like if I have to break up an argument, then I can go sit and talk like, well, what's really on your mind? You know, and then usually it turns out that somebody's still mad about something that happened when they were kids and that mom took their side and that it's all coming out right now. Well, let's let's not do that. Let's talk about this. We're not therapists. We're not counselors. That's where, again, like we're in this weird space of almost like life coaches. We're just end of life coaches where they're just there to make it easier for people. What I can see as you talk It's so clear. When we cross over on the other side, we have guides, we have entities that help us through that transition. So it only makes sense to have souls who are in physical form so that they can be here and interact with us to help us on the physical side with our transition. Same with birth. You know, we have birthing doulas who welcome the life into the world and they help the mom with that transition and with the Mm -hmm. breathing and they can also be on call and they can set up the room and they help with the birthing plan and all that stuff. takes me back to my days in working in labor and delivery. So it makes complete sense that we would have souls in physical form on this side who assist with the transition back to the other side. It's just, it's a no brainer, really. Now, for purposes of helping to make death less taboo, can I ask you, what does death look like if it's not what the movies portray it to be? So I think most people, when they think of death and dying, and you think about it in the movies, it's like, oh, somebody gets like shot in a movie and they, oh, their last words. And then they just close their eyes and like, that's it, you know, or it's explosions. And there's a bunch of people just dying traumatically. It's like, it's always an experience that is done for entertainment purposes. Some people it's days that it takes for them to actually fully transition where their breathing will change. They stop eating, they stop drinking, and then they'll like randomly wake up a little bit and have this conversation. And then everybody's like, what's happening here? Like, wow, look, everything's better. And then they close their eyes and they never open them again. And that's it. And so it's a lot longer of a process 
in a lot of cases than most people expect. Where like my grandmother, when she like the hospice nurse saw her because we had to send her to a hospice center because she had an infection. And the nurse said to me, oh, you know, we usually can tell hours before she'll die. So we'll call you. Mm -hmm. She checked on her, went back an hour later and she was gone. And she was like, that was just very fast. So sometimes it does happen that way. But again, it was a three-week process that led to that point. There was moments when she was completely nonverbal, mouth open, breathing weird, where I was like, I don't know what's happening. But sure, I'm just going to stay here and hold her hand and make sure she's comfortable. And then an hour later, she would be up talking to me and she would know who I was. And then a couple hours later, she would again think I was somebody else. The way that things happened, it was almost like being in a different reality. It didn't feel like real life. And most people are not ever exposed to that. Even people don't talk about their experiences often. After that happened with my grandmother, it's not like anybody wanted to know about it. You know, I just said that I took care of her. And then the couple of times I would try to maybe talk a little bit about some of the weirder things, it would just be like, oh, yeah, like hallucinations. Uh huh. Like that happens. And I was like, I don't think it was hallucinations, but sure. And so we don't get the honest view of what it looks like. And it is going to be different for every person. But it really is, in a lot of cases, a slower process. The breathing changes, the eating and the drinking changes. They're going to sleep a lot more. They might be in some pain, but in a lot of cases, they're just kind of kept comfortable. That's what hospice is really great at doing is keeping people comfortable. The body changes temperature, which is something that I didn't expect. The first time my doula mentor was like, yeah, you should have, you know, in your, your doula bag, you should, you know, have some aspirin or ibuprofen, whatever it is, like Tylenol that brings down your temperature. And I was like, well, why? Who cares if they have a temperature if they're dying? And she was like, well, like their temperature will drastically change. Like they run a really high fever and they'll be sweating a lot. And so they'll just be uncomfortable. And I was like, oh, I had no idea. So we just don't know these things. That's why it is great to have somebody that can just say to you, you know, if nothing else, call me. It could be 10 o'clock at night. It could be one o'clock in the morning. If it's one of my clients and their daughter or grandchild or whoever is sitting with them and they say, I don't know what's going on. Like she's running a high fever. What's happening? I can just talk to them and say, it's okay. Or I can go over and, you know, sit with them. Like that's what I'm here for. In a lot of cases though, when people feel prepared for it, they don't even need to do that. I think sometimes just knowing that they could call is enough. Again, like think about like with birth, right? Like when I had my, you know, son and my daughter, there was times when I was like, I could call my midwife if I have to. And I never had to. But when something felt weird or something strange was happening, especially with my son, and it was the first time, and I was like, what is going on? I don't know what's happening here. Knowing that I could call her made a huge difference, even though I didn't have to ever call her. And so that's what death doulas do, again, on the other end of the spectrum. And a lot of death doulas are also birth doulas. You know, like there's women that I know that have actually trained to do both. So they really do literally work on both ends of the spectrum which I find really amazing. I just think that is really beautiful. 
Yeah, how wonderful. What a wonderful role that they play for humans <laughs> who are having yes. this physical experience. So I want to shift gears just a little bit and talk to you about things like deathbed visions and shared experiences that I've heard of by listening to other podcasts about, for instance, somebody who had, a near, well, they, they call it a near-death experience, but clinically they would have been dead. And then they had somebody sitting with them who experienced, it's like they left their body as well. Can we mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that? Yes. So that is what people will call a shared death experience. Um, I actually just talked to a guy the other day. We were on a Zoom call together with like a group of other people. Again, unfortunately, his son had died. And he said that a couple days after, which was interesting, I'd never heard of this from anybody before. But he said a couple days after he went through the experience that his son must have gone through. He said he like floated above the body, was looking down on the body as if it was him as his son. He said he felt a feeling of peace and of comfort and just feeling like there was no more suffering. And he was like, you know, I don't know even what that was. I don't know what happened. He was like, I can't even explain it because it's just like something that you have to experience. And he is the type of person that said he would have never believed it if somebody else would have told him that. But when he experienced it, he was like, oh, this is real. He also said that his son visited for about three weeks, he would show signs that again, this guy was like, sure. I would have never sure. believed this if somebody else would have said it. And to me, I said that was interesting because in Buddhism and in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they talk about it like having this period of time where the body essentially is still releasing the soul, I guess, you know? And I was like, that's actually interesting because it's somewhere in the range of like 40 days, 46 days, I don't know, 48, somewhere in that. But this guy experienced it firsthand because he said now it's been years and he almost wants that back and it hasn't happened since. But he said for the three weeks afterwards, he had that shared death experience and he said his son was constantly showing up and then he was gone. And he transitioned fully into whatever the next phase is. And so I think that's really amazing. And more and more people experience it and are now starting to talk about it. Because I think it probably has happened to people that you know, but they don't talk about it. Same thing with near-death experiences. You know, people will go through it. And like you said, they're really, in a lot of cases, like clinically actually dead and then they come back, but they'll talk about seeing things and it's across cultures. It's not like it's just like, you know, an American that's like, you know, living in this time that has these experiences. I mean, this is like across time, across cultures, people have had these experiences of having an accident or sometimes just like a natural death, like they get an illness and they die, but then come back. Sometimes they're sent back, which I think is also really interesting when like they kind of have people, entities, spirits, whatever it is that will meet them and be like, now's not your time. You need to go yeah, back. I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so that's where I think to me, you can't prove these things, right? There's, there's no way, at least in our knowledge right now, as humans, can we prove that these things are happening 
but there's enough people that talk about them. And there's enough people that will say, I would have never believed this until it happened to me. There's even doctors that have had shared death experiences with patients that'll kind of do the same thing where they're like, yo, like I would have never believe somebody if they would have said this, like, this is not who I am. This is not what I believe, but I experienced it. And I don't know how to explain it. A patient dies and the doctor experiences floating out of the body with the patient and like looking down on the scene and seeing all of it. And I'm like, part of me kind of hopes that happens to me one day. I'm like, <laughs> wouldn't that like, be amazing? Be, right. I think it would be kind of cool, but then I don't know. I don't want to ever have any expectations about anything, especially because, again, I've had a few strange experiences with spirits that I don't really know if I want to be bombarded by that either. You know, I don't know if I want to have every client that I see from <laughs> now until I die showing up. No, thank you. I don't need that. <laughs> but, you know, a shared death experience might be kind of cool. I don't know. Yeah, I bet it's life changing really life-changing. I'm going to be doing actually this weekend, a life between lives regression session. Ooh. And part of that session is going to your most recent past life and going through that death and experiencing the, that death so that you end up in between lives. So I'm really looking forward to that because from everyone I hear, it's just, it's life-changing. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Very fascinating. So I'm looking forward to it. So I actually have training in shamanic healing practices and the shaman that I learned under, we do soul retrievals, which in a lot of cases, she did tell us during the training that you may see how the person died. And typically if they died and part of their soul was left behind, it's going to be a traumatic experience. So a lot of people don't really even if they're interested in hearing about it, she was like, I wouldn't really share that with people because you don't want them to get stuck back in that past again. For example, I did a um, soul retrieval on a person uh, a couple months ago, actually, not even that long ago. And in it, the scene that I saw was a man killing his wife and his child. He killed the wife. It looked like by mistake, he was beating her up and killed her. And the child observed. And the person that I was, was the child. And yeah, even thinking about it now, like gives me goosebumps. And it was brutal. And I was like, I cannot tell this person what I just saw. I can't. I am detached from it. And so I was like witnessing the scene almost again. Like I was like the child and seeing it and just, it was, it was terrible. So like this person didn't need to see that, but it also really did help to explain some of the fears that they had told me they were having. So I was like, well, I think we brought back the piece that you needed <laughs> and I think you're going to feel a lot better now, yeah. but you know, I don't know if I want to see you know, I have like this really bizarre fear of water. Now I am an excellent swimmer. My family grew up on a river. I was a lifeguard. I mean, there's literally no reason why I should be afraid of water. And the only time that I'm afraid of it is when I'm on a boat and it has to be a bigger boat, but not a cruise ship, not that big. 
It's really strange. And it's been happening since I was a kid. Like we would take a ferry that would like take your car, you would drive your car and it would take your car from New Jersey to Delaware. Right. So it was like a big boat, but not a huge boat. And the first time it happened to me, I thought I was going to vomit. Like I started to feel panicked. I thought I couldn't breathe. And I was probably like 12. And I was, again, an excellent swimmer at that point. And I was like, no idea why. Mm. I was terrified of it. And even now, if I get sometimes near boats that are the right size, and I'm like, my whole body just like goes through this reaction. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of the idea of a past life because I was telling somebody about it when I was in college because we were somewhere that was near boats. And I was like, I I literally have to back up right now. Like, I think I'm going to throw up. My whole body does not feel good. And they were like, oh, you know, you maybe died on a boat in a past life. And I was like, what the heck are they (laughs) talking about? But the more that I started to like research the idea of a past life and that if I did for some reason die in a past life on a boat that was about that size... I can see why now there would still be part of me that would be on that boat and would all like my whole body was like, nope, 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 nope. We're not doing this again. Yeah. But when it happens to you and you're going through it and you don't know why you're going through it and you're thinking, this is insane. What is going on with me? So I don't know, you know, again, like, Maybe if I went through the experience, I would, especially now, like this age with like, you know, as far as I've gone down, like my spiritual path, I probably could stay disconnected enough. But part of me, just like the idea of reliving one of my deaths, especially if it was traumatic, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I could do that. I know. I know. It does take a lot of trust. I, I feel like a lot of it is also the practitioner and how they help you as the client handle that. Because I know, like you said, there's this, it's not so much the transition with death, but it's the potential suffering and pain leading up to the death and having to relive that. So just again, having, I think that trust in a practitioner who uh, has been trained well. Luckily, the practitioner I found, she was trained under the Michael Newton Institute. He was a psychologist and he wrote all these books on these case studies and had created an institute. So I have a lot of faith in that institute and their training of their practitioners. So anyway, a lot of it has to do with how they help the client go through that and, and the words that they say so that it isn't so terrible if it is terrible. And then also a lot of it too, for me, having trust in my guides that they won't give me anything that I can't handle and what may be not necessary for me to have the experience that I'm, that I'm meant to. But yeah, I could see how it could be really scary. So I do plan to share my experience. So uh, <laughs> if it was like terrible or great, I'll share how awesome. it goes. I'll definitely I'm listen because really I'm really I curious. Hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I heard it's life changing. Uh, so and now going back to the, the deathbed visions. Now you had mentioned that your grandmother, she was talking to you like you were the nurse, but then also noticed there's somebody else there like the veil really thinning between this world and that world. Do you have any uh, other experiences or stories that you can share? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I think, again, a lot of times people discredit it. So when I went to meet a client for the first time, 
again, I, I had never met her. I'd never talked to her. I sat down, the family was there. I sat down with her and I said, Oh, you know, how are you doing? And her response was, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm okay. Except these people are just keeping me up at night. And right away, one of the children was like, Oh, it's not real. She's just imagining it. And I was like, okay. And I'm like, well, you know, are they people that you know? And she said, oh, sometimes they're people I know and other times they're not. They just come in and they just talk and they talk and they talk and they keep me up all night. Oh, man. <laughs> and, I, yeah, I know. and I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of funny. But it just, it's amazing to me how much people don't want to believe that that's what it is. And I think sometimes it was also this idea of not wanting to believe that they're that far along because sure, sure. if they're starting to see spirits, I think even if you don't, you know, really understand death, you probably figure out that it's probably getting closer. But most of the time it's comforting, but not all the time. There was a woman that had told me that like it was towards the end and she said, one of her friends who had died, I don't know, they said that this friend had died because I just kind of asked, you know, I'm like, so who's, she said her name was Anne. I'm like, who's Anne? You know, ask the family. I'm like, is there somebody named Anne? And they said, oh, that was her, you know, best friend that died, you know, probably 10 or 15 years ago. And she said to me that Anne was coming and digging a bone into her ribs at night, trying to kill her. And oh, my. Was like, I don't know who Anne is. Whoa. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I know. But the more that we talked about it, then it didn't actually seem to scare her, which I was a little freaked out where I was like, oh gosh, I was like, that might be terrifying for me. And I didn't say that to her. I just kind of said, you know, well, how do you feel about that? And she was like, I think it's kind of rude. <laughs> like, <laughs> why would she do that to me? Rude. And I was like, I agree. That is kind of rude. But then as it progressed, there was more friends and more family members. And then Anne stopped trying to kill her. So I don't know if maybe it was also that at that point, she was still lucid enough that just seeing somebody that she knows died, even if the woman wasn't necessarily trying to kill her, she just, for whatever reason, interpreted it that way. But that was the only yeah. time I'd ever talked to anybody that it seemed a little, not scary again, but it was definitely like, like she said, it was kind of rude. Like, why would you come do that to me? Why would you come and poke <laughs> me with a bone in my ribcage? <laughs> but, you know, a lot of times people find comfort in it. You know, there'll even be stories of like people that lost babies, lost children, that like the children will come and come to get them. There's also this idea too, of that when people die, they will sometimes come and like talk to their family members. That's, I think, pretty interesting too, where it's not just like the little signs of like things moving around or like actual visual, they'll see the person's spirit and they'll say to them, it's okay. I'm not in pain anymore. I'm comfortable. It's okay. And so it is interesting that like you said, like that veil gets really thin. And that's why like some death doulas, I think even almost say like, you know, they walk that line. Again, it was like a shaman would where like they can walk the line between the two worlds. 
because it's just, it's real fuzzy there, you know, like it kind of like bleeds both ways a little bit. And if you're open to it too, I think you're more likely to see it where if you're not open to it, you're not as likely to either, I think, notice it if it is happening, because part of your brain is like, no, that can't be what I'm thinking it is. Or, you know, you're just not experiencing it because you're just so closed down to it. Where when you're close to death, whether you want to be or not, you're open to this other world. You know, you're kind of like I said with my grandmother, like I really do think part of her had already gone once she decided that it was time. So I'm not surprised that as she kind of moved in and out of this world, that people were kind of coming with her or visiting her. And some of it was, you know, angels, she would call them, you know, beautiful angels that would come and they would sing to her. And again, I'm like looking around and I'm like, I don't see or hear anything. But part of me also didn't want to because... I'm not sure how I feel about seeing or hearing these things sometimes. I think I'm more open to it now, but at the time it was definitely a little bit hesitant that I didn't want to hear them because what would that mean for me? And again, like how would that change my life if I really was experiencing these things? You know, how do you maneuver through the world? But I guess that's where for me, I still have like a lot of hesitance with, like with that guy that I said was in my head, I was really like, how did you get in there? Like, you need to go away. I didn't want you in here. You know, I've always put up this wall since I was a child. And I think the first experience happened to me. I was like, nope, nope, nope. I'm done. I don't want this. And so I think opening yourself up yeah. to it, you'll see it and you'll hear it and you'll feel yeah. it more and more of it. And just, yeah, as you get towards that end whether you want to or not, you're going to be open to it because you're there. You're like at that doorstep. You just need to put that next foot over and that's it. So people do experience it all the time. I I do want to ask about one, one more thing before we wrap up our interview. Those moments of lucidity, like those moments where the person dying comes to. And like you said, it's like, oh, looks like everything's actually okay. What do you think is happening there? And is that pretty common? It is pretty common. Um, sometimes, you know, people call it like the rally right at the end. I honestly don't know what's happening there. I really don't because I don't know. Like, I don't see, there's not even part of my brain that can really understand how that would happen other than maybe the person really is just kind of like, you know what? It's almost time. Like I just want one last like conversation. Rally, right? <laughs> yeah. One last rally. Cause it doesn't usually last super long, but I mean, they'll be basically back to normal conversation wise from what they used to be. And even in people that have gone for extended periods of time, of like not really talking, not really communicating. And then all of a sudden it'll seem like they're back to normal. Sometimes they sit up. It's very strange. And I really don't know what to make of it other than maybe they just get that little boost at the end where it's like almost the end. So like, if you want to say anything else, get it in now. Because I do think a lot of people have things unsaid. And my idea of ghosts or spirits or whatever you want to think of it is, it's just 
you know, souls that are stuck here because they're still so attached because they have so much unfinished business, unfinished things, or they die traumatically and they just can't let go. And so I think, you know, maybe that's the opportunity that people have to just like have those last few minutes to like really say anything they want to get off their chest in the last minute. I mean, I think it's kind of a nice gift if your family's around to be able to have those few minutes. But sometimes people do get a little confused because they're like, oh, look, everything's great. They're going to live. It's going to be fine. And it's like, well, no, they're not. Yeah. It really is a blessing. You're right to have those last few minutes. Is there a pattern like when that time happens to when they actually pass? Does it seem to be like within a day or does it does there seem to be some sort of pattern with that? Yeah, it's usually very close to the end. I mean, again, everybody's a little bit different. It's not like everybody's going to die the same way. But if they are going to do it, it's going to be within probably the 24 hours before they die. Sometimes it's within the last hour. Like it really will just be that they'll pop up. They have a little bit of a conversation, close their eyes, and then that's pretty much it. So usually it is very, very much at the end. I mean, again, everybody's different. Some people really surprise, you know, all the hospice nurses where they just don't show the normal traditional signs of what it'll be like. But the hospice nurses really, they're, they're not lying when they say they usually can tell within a few hours of somebody's passing because they know the signs. They've seen it so many times and think it's like laboring a baby or just laboring the soul out of the body that there's things that we can watch for and things that we know are going to happen along the way. If it's, a normal death, normal in the sense of like nothing ever goes as planned exactly, just like with babies. Right. But you know, there's things that you can look for and things that you can expect. That makes a lot of sense. So to help wrap up our interview, I wanted to see what advice would the Jill of today give the Jill from her past? Oh yeah. I'm like, I guess it depends on what age, <laughs> but Overall, especially when it comes to around this topic of like death, dying, afterlife, all of that, I really would just tell myself to chill out a little bit. That the world is a more amazing and wonderful place. The whole spectrum of my life, whether it's just this one or if there is many more after this and many more before it, is just so vast. That like the little things that used to really bother me, just let it go. Like you'll be happier if you could just let it all go. And I'm glad I learned it even at this age, you know, but I wish I could go back to little Jill and teenage Jill, you know, and like there's like the teenage <laughs> drama and just be like, it doesn't matter what those girls say about you. <laughs> I promise you, it doesn't matter. You know, like, I wish I could go and say that. Oh, well, that is wonderful advice. So thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for your time and for sharing your knowledge and for helping to ease the fear around death and for being there for people 
in their time of transition and their families and loved ones. So thank you so much for the work that you do and for your time today. Well, thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. I love talking about it. So thank you. I appreciate it. Yes, very fascinating. Thank you. was another episode of a guided life podcast thank you so much for tuning in and until next time love and light always I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Mediumship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.